when the Son of God assumed the human flesh, uh, the body is now a means of not only relationship with other persons, but also it is a vehicle through which uh, we yeah. have that communion with God. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle, a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit avemaria.edu join for more information. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we are joined by Father Joseph Lugalambi, professor of theology at Ave Maria University and a priest of Uganda. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much, Father Joseph, for being on our show. And I wanted to ask you, just kind of starting right, right, right at the big, the big question about so much of the work you've done with John Paul II's Theology of the Body, uh, and it's this. I think when people think about John Paul II's Theology of the Body, they naturally turn to the questions of marriage, sexuality, um, the church's teachings on marriage, and how John Paul II's theology helps us to understand those, right? And I think that's been such a gift to the church. But a lot of your work and uh, the work of your dissertation and the work of your teaching and the work of uh, your pastoral ministry and different things like that has also shown how the John Paul II's theology of the body really illuminates the meaning of suffering, yes. right? So that as the contemporary world faces the question of suffering, uh, as your many uh, people, uh, many Catholics in Uganda uh, face a lot of suffering, what is it about the Pope's theology of the body that actually is in and of itself, right, a theology of suffering. Towards the end of the theology of the body, St. John Paul II notes that his work has omitted some elements that are so important to the theology of the body, and actually he mentions suffering and death. So in that, towards yes. the end of that work, he invites us, the readers of the theology of the body, to develop his work in relation to suffering. And when I read that, I remember when I read that I was in the seminary, it struck me, remember, I was with Professor Lawrence Feingold, who introduced me to the theology of the body, but when I read that phrase, it introduced me, how can suffering square into the theology of the body? And uh, I joined the Ave Maria University in the fall of 2017, Actually, my bishop had met Professor Mikhail Vostein in Rome and listened to him uh, give lectures on the theology of the body, and so he wanted me to study under him so that I can also, when I return back to Uganda, teach and promote the theology of the body. But when I read the theology of the body again, John Paul II uh, arranges uh, the theology of the body. You can take it to three terms, uh, three parts, depending on how you read it. So he first gives us the historical man, man in the Garden of Eden. Then after he looks at man after the fall and redemption, as we are now. And then he looks at the body, how it will be in the glorified state when we will be with God and in the communion of saints. But when you look at the shift from our stage now, the historical state, which is uh, characterized by sin and redemption, John Paul II does not really make a good bridge between our state now and our glorified state. But when you read his other works, instead, uh, especially his uh, work on redemptive value of suffering, Salvifici Doloris, which he published in 1984, you see that that work, Salvifici Doloris, really fills that gap. So that's how I got yeah. interested. In wow, that's that's really amazing. And uh, you know, of course, somebody with John Paul II's uh, brilliant philosophical and theological mind, and also pastoral fatherly heart, mm -hmm. 
would know in a way what not only what he was doing, but also what he had not yet been able to do in in those particular works. And uh, yeah, I love the fact that he identifies the fact that if the theology of body is true, then it shifts how we consider suffering and death. And, you know, maybe for, you know, people who might not be as familiar with the theology of the body, one one aspect that I just uh, love is, it's actually in section five, it's called man in the dimension of the gift, but it's called the spousal meaning of the body. And so the idea there, in part at least, is that what we do with our bodies matter. Our bodies are not merely mechanical uh, machines, yes. but our bodies are the ways that our souls communicate with one another. So we have bodies, so in a way that our souls can communicate and uh, love. So the body, right, expresses the soul. And so when he says that, Brady says this, he speaks about that we somehow now see something unique, is that human beings are the only creature that can recognize that they were created. Yes. We see that we ourselves are a gift of God, right? And therefore, what he calls the hermeneutics of the gift, right? That we are fundamentally given by God, our presence is a present from God, yes. and at the same thing, then we have this response. So yes. he says, right, creation is a gift, right? And we, because we are in the image of God, are able to understand the meaning of this gift, and therefore, we can enter into a reciprocal gift. We can give ourselves back to God, and we can give ourselves to one another. Mm-hmm. So this idea, in a way, that when he puts it, the body expresses the person, Yes. right? The body expresses the person, and therefore, to become spousal means that human beings don't mate. Yes. Human beings make promises with their mouths, and they espouse themselves with vows, and therefore create new relationships in which I promise to give myself to one another, uh, or you know, to my spouse. And, and in a way, then, this opens up an idea that more fundamentally than my orientation of man to woman yes. is my orientation of creature to creator, yes. of child of God to heavenly father through the son in the spirit. So in that same way then, all that I do with my body yes. right, can become a gift to God. So, right, could you then, what would you say then, how does that, you know, how does that way of understanding our bodies as the mode through which the person, in a way, discovers himself as gift and then gives himself as gift, right? How does that change the way we look at suffering and death? Yeah, that is a very important uh point that throughout the theology of the body and even in Savifshi Dororis, St. John Paul II talks about that power of the body to express love. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the theology of the body, right from the beginning, he says that the foundation of that spousal meaning of the body, the body's power to express love of yes. the gift of the person, is the image of God in man that God created us in his own image, that even after the fall, the image of God did not fly away. We retained the image of God in which we were created. And he says um, in audience 23, I think paragraph four, he talks about the incarnation, that the fact that the, the eternal son of God acquired a body, theology, yes. the body entered into theology through a front door. Yeah. That because yeah. of the incarnation, and uh, later he talks about the redemption, those go together. Because of the incarnation and redemption, Christ redeemed the body's capacity to express love, to, that power, the spousal meaning of the body. So even in our own vulnerability, in our suffering, because Christ has redeemed the human body, we in our sufferings in union with Christ, we 
we there is that communion, there is that communion that we can uh, have that communion of persons with the other persons, but also even through suffering, that's it's an opportunity through which we yeah. become united to God in a special way. Yeah. And I think what you raise there is so important because I think a lot of people can overlook that when they think about the theology of the body, they only think about the man and the woman in you know marriage and sexuality. Uh, but that is, it's the primary kind of, the primary theology of the body is the incarnation, right? Yes. That it's when God comes to us mm-hmm. in Jesus Christ in an incarnate, the word becomes flesh, right? The the eternal Logos son enters, becomes fully human and takes a human body and therefore communicates divine realities, right? Jesus Christ touches people. Yes. He heals, he touches the leper and heals the leper. You know, you can think about like his hand yes. communicates divine power, divine wisdom, divine love. His words, um, his words that he speaks, raise the little girl, get up, uh, Lazarus, come out. Uh, His, um, you know, the everything that he does is really an expression of eternal love. Yes, and yeah, and uh, the that fact, the importance of the incarnation is even shown in the liturgy especially the common prayer, the angelus, yes. when, we, when we say those words and the word became flesh and daughter right. among us, yes. we genuflect yeah. to show that uh, uh, the incarnation is so central yeah. in mm-hmm. our life, that uh, so when the Son of God assumed human flesh, uh, the body is now a means of not only relationship with other persons, but also it is a vehicle through which uh, we yeah. have that communion with God. Yes, and then, right, Christ not only does that, but he begins to suffer. He begins to get hungry. He, right, goes on his passion, his journey to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. being rejected, mm-hmm. um, beaten, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all these different things. He offers his own body mm-hmm. for our redemption. Yes. Uh, and that love for the Father that is so perfect that it takes on all of the, you know, the sin and misunderstanding and cruelty of of history mm-hmm. and takes it all on himself and, you know, kind of in some ways, right, defeats it in the resurrection. And of course, the resurrection too is a resurrection of the body. The body. So he suffers in the body and then he rises in the body and his body is now in heaven. Yes. Right. And so that is really kind of the source then of the theology of the body. And in that sense, right, it already opens up to a theology of suffering and death. Right. And uh, John Paul II um, repeats many times in uh, Salvific Doloris that Christ saved us through the suffering of his body, through yeah. his bodily suffering. So in that we, the members of his body, the Christians, if we suffer in union with him, we are reunited with him, and our sufferings themselves yeah. are not wasted, but they are mystically united yeah. with his, and that actually our suffering is elevated to 2.0. We <laughs> receive yes. more dignity, and that they mystically participate in that act through which we are saved. I think that is, that's so important. It really is beautiful, and if we step back and we think about it, in some ways, right, in our contemporary age, we often find many people struggle with a crisis of meaning. Mm-hmm. And many people will say that there's no fundamental meaning to human sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's just a natural activity, um, you know, that you can, you know, uh, do at will consensually. And people will often find, again, work has no meaning. Intrinsically, it's just a thing we do in order to get money. Uh, it has no intrinsic purpose. And then if sexuality is meaningless and work is meaningless, then unfortunately it means suffering is meaningless. Okay. Suffering that we all encounter, the the moral suffering at having failed, maybe to live up to our highest standards, the suffering of being rejected by friends or uh, romantic interests, the suffering of the death of loved ones, uh, painful illnesses in ourselves, right? All of that suffering, 
according to that same kind of worldview, mm-hmm. is meaningless, right? And and so John Paul II, right, in Salvifici Dolores, this on the redemptive, me or sorry, on the Christian meaning of human suffering is the way he puts it. It's interesting. It's the Christian meaning of human suffering, as he puts it. He actually calls it the Salvifici Dolores. By the way, that means the salvific meaning of suffering. suffering. Mm-hmm. So. It's kind of like not only does he say that suffering uh, and right, human sexuality and work and everything can become meaningful, but it actually can become salvific. So could you just say a little bit more about how how is it that maybe, you know, uh, in, your, in your role as a priest or as a teacher, how is it that you can, you use maybe this theology of John Paul II to help people find meaning amidst suffering? Yeah, yeah. Um- Christ, by dying for us on the cross through suffering, showed us that suffering is now meaningful insofar as we unite our sufferings to his on the cross. So it is one of the best sacraments that as a priest I'm privileged to administer, I would say, is the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. And this reminds me uh, during the uh, COVID-19 lockdown, uh, the churches were closed and I had an opportunity of visiting a parishioner in one of the hospitals here in Naples. And this man had six children and he was alone over there. Um, But um, after getting through the struggles and getting to his hospital room, I used a long stick to anoint him but giving, uh, administering these church's sacraments, anointing of the sick to fortify him, I saw his face lightening up, his face lightening up, and I didn't know what to tell him, but he told me, Father, go and tell my wife and children that I love them and I will be with them, with God. I'll be with them and I'm praying for them. And for me, through that man's suffering and through his union with Christ through these sacraments, that was the most kind, most union, unique union with his family that was far away and with God that is, that is so unique that we do not even ex- most experience in our daily lives. Yeah. So uh, Christ, by suffering for us, he elevated human suffering itself in that it acquired us John Paul II says in Salvific Doloris that suffering now has a salvific meaning in that through suffering itself united with Christ's cross is, can be a means of redemption, a means of salvation. Yeah, and and I think part of that is maybe like, I think maybe just, you know, again, trying to, think through this, if, especially for people who hear this and it's just kind of like, what does that mean? Or it sounds so obvious that it's unhelpful is that I think we really want to recover the ideas that the suffering of Christ leads to the resurrection, yes. right? It's not just that Christ suffered, it's that he suffered and then overcame suffering. He died and then destroyed death. So suffering becomes salvific when we recognize in a way just in the simple faith of that man that you described Mm -hmm. that his suffering and death, because it was joined to Christ, would not be the end. It would have meaning and purpose because he would be with God and he could be then closer to his loved ones in God. And, And so I think the sense that we have to remember that Right, that suffering is already a part of our lives, and what Christ does is enter into our suffering to transform our suffering, so that suffering now becomes a path to life without suffering. Yes, uh, there's a passage in uh, Revelation 21:4, and I remember it very particularly because when I was 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 young, my I had a a, a sister who who died suddenly, and uh, I was very very lost. And a Christian friend at the time wrote me a card. And I remember in the card, mm-hmm. I was not a Christian. I was, I was a baptized Catholic, but I was, I was not a believer. And I was, I was an angry young man, so to speak. And, but I remember uh, Revelation just wrote, you know, when you're ready, look up Revelation 21.4. And it basically says, you know, uh, when God dwells with his people perfectly, 
Um, he will wipe away every tear, and there will be no more suffering. And so it's not that we love suffering in and of itself. It's that Christ enters into our suffering to undo the power of suffering and death. And this is what's revealed. And I think that sense of keeping that eye on that theme of glory, as you began right at the beginning with the theology of the body, we're actually moving to the glorified body that Christ has now in heaven. That's our hope. Yes, yes. On the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, there is uh, the antiphon for the morning prayer mm-hmm. says, by Christ's death, he, he destroyed death itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like what you've said in Revelation, that through by his death, by his suffering yeah. and death, he destroyed death itself and brought us the resurrection. So I think it's always good to keep, uh, to keep our eyes focused on the end, yes. that suffering as suffering, it is an evil. But 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 the uh, the end is the resurrection. We yes. pass through the path that our Lord passed. We are re- the resurrected people, the re- resurrection people. Yes. So it's interesting when um, John Paul II in uh, Salvifici Dolores, right on the Christian meaning of suffering, he he speaks of something that's almost shocking: the gospel of suffering. Yes. Which, which is, right, the good news of suffering. Um, but he says this when he says this is just the full sentence, though, that he mentions this. The witnesses of the cross and resurrection of Christ, again, it's the cross and resurrection are one, yes. and they go together, have handed on to the church and to mankind a specific gospel of suffering. The Redeemer himself wrote this gospel above all by his own suffering, accepted in love, so that man should not perish but have eternal life, right? Um, so this is kind of that idea is that his own suffering accepted in love, uh, that right? That love with which Christ accepts suffering is not, it is a perfectly human love, but it's a perfectly human love that is taken up into the perfectly divine love of his divine nature, right? That actually, uh, I think, is so hopeful because there is nothing we do with our bodies that is meaningless. No suffering that anyone goes through, no tear that anyone shed, no being awake in the middle of the night when you can't sleep, no pain and agony, whatever it is, is lost to Christ on the cross because on the cross, right, Christ being eternal as the catechism teaches, he says, I think it's in 617, but it says, he sees each one of us in a way. He knows and loves each one of us and in a way remembers on the cross all of our suffering. So we are never alone. Yes, um, in that chapter where he talks about the good news of suffering, the gospel of suffering, he gives an example of the saints whose conversion, like Ignatius of Loyola, whose conversion itself was through his experience of suffering on that uh, on the sickbed, that he his life was saved when, as we as meditated on the lives of the saints. He got those consolations, yes. and that suffering itself has a meaning. And um, Saint Augustine in the Confessions talks about his uh, after his conversion that he looked for God in other things, but he didn't. You know, he, he says uh, uh, he, he talks about that. He says that God is closer to us than we are close to ourselves. Yes. So it goes to that line in the Catechism that God sees each of us even in the depth of our suffering because the suffering he went through on the cross, as you said, being a divine person, is is human suffering. uh, He he knew every, he experienced a suffering that is more excruciating, more than all the sufferings of the world combined. Yeah, yeah. And, And I love that language too that the John Paul II uses when he speaks of that his own suffering accepted in love. And if we go back to what we began with, this uh, the spousal meaning of the body, that human beings recognize the whole created world as created, yes. as a gift from God. We recognize ourselves, our mm-hmm. souls as gifts. 
our bodies as gifts and therefore that we can use like that the body expresses the person and I can give myself back to God and to one another that the word accept yes. in English if you look it up the I think the second meaning or the, the second and third meanings is really to receive as a gift Yes. By the way, it's why we don't like judges that accept bribes. <laughs> it doesn't just mean that they put up with bribes. It means that they accept them as a gift, mm-hmm. and therefore they then owe the person who gave them something. Mm-hmm. Well, if, when we accept suffering, now you could say, how could we receive suffering as a gift? How could you receive something that is evil as a gift? Well, on our own, we really can't. No, but we can because we see that Christ has already received it as a gift, that in a way we can see that what is what what brings my life most meaning, it's to give of myself to another person. And within this world, to give of myself to another person means to accept the suffering that is present in that other person and in life. The only way I can give myself to another person in this historical order is by accepting the suffering that is present in some sense, as a gift. As a gift. As something that um, I'm either going to accept it as a gift or I'm going to rebel at it. And if I rebel, then I lose my capacity to be able to right, really give of myself to the other person. So I just think that sense of turning back to accepting suffering with love means to receive it as a gift and to right, give it back to God. In, in the broken ways that we can, but realize we don't do it with our strength. We do it with the strength that right, comes from God so that right, we might right, journey unto eternal life. Yeah, and, and uh, Christ is our model in that. Uh, when you read John chapter 17, uh, he says, Father, you gave this to me where I, I want to be is where I, I want them to be where I am, that yes. they may be one as we are one. And uh, I, that gift given and received in love is so important, even in suffering. Love conquers all. Christ, out of love for us, yeah. uh, died for us on the cross. And even in the Eucharist, take this all of you and eat of it. You know, he gives himself as a gift to us so that we may receive him. And it is important that distinction that you made that on our own, we are, it's difficult to accept suffering, but Christ continuously gives himself to us. And we use the grace that he gives us, the Holy Spirit who works within us, that we are able to give ourselves as a gift, even in the experience of our own sufferings. Right there, there are two um, quotes on this, and then we'll take a break. Um, but one is from uh, actually Father Jacques Philippe writes about it, I think, an in interior piece. But he quotes Saint Therese of Lisieux: "I only suffer for one moment." And right, she suffered a lot, mm-hmm. um, both existentially towards the end of her life and uh, with awful tuberculosis. But she says, "I only suffer for one moment." It is because people think about the past and the future that they become discouraged and despair. Right. Um, So we have to also learn how to suffer by suffering only in the moment. Mm -hmm. And this is another one. Maurice Baring writes, wrote a book called Darby and Joan. And he was a friend of uh, like G.K. Chesterton's kind of part of that Catholic literary revival. But he says this, one had to accept sorrow for it to be of any healing power. And that is the most difficult thing in the world. A priest once said to me, when you understand what accepted sorrow means, you will understand everything. It is the secret of life. So we'll come back in a minute after the break, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about how your own experience maybe with the Catholic Church in Uganda, and um, you said that your bishop had actually asked you to come and study the theology of the body for the purpose of suffering. So tell us a little bit about your own journey and a little bit maybe about the church in Uganda and um, you know some of your plans. So after the break, we'll come back and speak about that. Okay. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU 
to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit avemaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we have Father Joseph Lugalambi on our show. So again, thank you for being on our show today. I'm so honored to be here. Yes, and we've been discussing uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, and especially its relationship to recovering the meaning of suffering, right? That suffering can be meaningful, redemptive, uh, and that it is, so to speak, right, not wasted, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, really recovering that idea. Now, you had mentioned that in part, right, your bishop back in Uganda yes. asked you to come study at Ave Maria University uh, to work on the theology of the body after your seminary studies, right, yes. at, at Kenrick Lennon. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what's what was your experience uh, in Uganda? What's the... What's kind of the uh, state of the ch- Catholic Church in Uganda, and how is it, especially that the Pope's John Paul II's theology of the body addresses a pastoral need that, that you see there? Yeah, um, Uganda is a young country. It got independ- its independence in the year 1962, so it's only 60, 61 years independent. Yes, wow. And... Uh, like the church, many churches in Africa, south of the Sahara Desert, it is at its youthful stage, uh, 134 years old as mm. the church. So at this youthful stage, we have many vocations to the priesthood. The churches are full. Uh, Uganda is the size of Oregon State, mm. but with 46 million people. And uh, 40% of those 46 million people are Catholics. We have 19 Catholic dioceses, and my diocese, Masaka, is the oldest of the dioceses in Uganda. It's where the White Fathers, or today they rebranded their name. They are called the Missionaries of, of Africa. That's where their base was. So they based from my home diocese to evangelize many other parts of Africa, south of the Sahara Desert. So given the situation and our the church is still young, uh, people still hold the traditional natural law values. So marriage is still a a sacred sacrament, uh, whether natural marriage by non-Catholics and non-Christians. If a man or a woman gets married, it's the celebration of the entire community. Mm. So the village comes together and the village contributes the food, and everything to celebrate marriage because they know that marriage is the surest way of continuing the human society. And even our government uh, is quite good in upholding the natural law, the traditional norms. For instance, today, I think you've heard it over the news that uh, uh, homosexuality and LGBTQ is illegal in Uganda. Mm. Uh, And... uh, um, Abortion is illegal. So given our situation, the theology of the body is really important. Though unfortunately, it's not as popular as it is here. So the way we are, and if Africa is to remain the future of the church, as some people say, I think this is the time for us to embrace John Paul II's teaching on the importance of human sexuality and marriage. And uh, um, so, yeah, I think that, that my bishop had uh, wanted me to come and study the theology of the body. Uh, actually, right now I'm writing a curriculum. I'm writing a curriculum for theology of the body for all elementary and secondary schools in Uganda. So it's a big project. I'll translate oh. it into four languages. But uh, um, yeah, that's what I'm wow. working on. So maybe what I hear you saying is that culturally, there's a lot of support for traditional marriage. And I love the idea, by the way, that the, vill- that the village comes together to offer the, you know, to like kind of pay for the wedding. Because yes. it's interesting, so many people in America will describe as the cost of the wedding is a reason not to get married. Um, so what a beautiful way of supporting mm-hmm. marriage. And so if there's a lot of the kind of cultural support, then 
in part, of course, you want to really help make sure that there's a deep theological understanding so that it's not merely, you know, cultural, yes. but that it's, um, it's, it's theological that, that people are really understanding, you know, the, 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 the meaning of yeah. human sexuality within marriage. And maybe could you just say a word in your, you know, within a curriculum for, you know, schools on the theology of body, what are a couple points that you would like to, that you're kind of maybe taking as central points for this curriculum that you're writing for the uh, diocese or the, you know, the schools in Uganda? Uh, yeah, one of the most important central points is the spousal meaning of the body, mm. that the body itself has a meaning. Though I said that uh, we, with the society, the Ugandan community still upholds the importance of marriage and human sexuality, we have a lot of pressure from the West, even in our curriculum. When I was, one of the problems that we have is the HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. So when I was in the elementary school and secondary school, we, in order to avoid HIV AIDS, we followed the so-called AB method, abstain and be faithful. But today mm -hmm. in many schools, even in the curriculum, there is C comes, uh, C comes first, always use a condom instead of uh, abstain and be faithful, and now it's all reversed. So um, I emphasize the spousal meaning of the body. And also John Paul II in the theology of the body, he talks about the, the language of the body, that the language, the body has a God-given language, and therefore it has to be spoken in truth. And John Paul II takes it to the marriage vow, the marital vow, that uh, a, a man and woman, they promise each other and they vow God that I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. So those words that the couple say to each other on their wedding day, every time man and woman come in the conjugal act, they are rereading those words. They are mm. reenacting that marital vow that they made it to God and to each other and in the presence of the church. So that language has to be lived in the truth. So use of any form of contraception is not speaking the truth of the body, is uh, mm. speaking the language of the body with falsity. So this, uh, that theme of the spousal meaning of the body, I think it's so important. Mm. That's, really, that's really powerful. Um, and I think, yeah, some people have described it that when we give ourselves uh, sexually, but not wholly and yes. totally, then we are lying with our body, right? As, as you described it there from John Paul II. So, um, yeah, so maybe tell us a little bit more about, you know, how then do you see that this language of suffering uh, is also important uh, for the kind of pastoral situation in Uganda? Yeah, um, there is a lot of suffering in our countries and uh, in the continent of Africa, uh, from HIV AIDS to uh, wars themselves, famine, poverty, mm -hmm. and lack of appropriate, uh, adequate medical care. Most people don't have insurance. So mm -hmm. when even the priests, a priest himself, you are not only a pastor of the soul, but sometimes when you go to anoint someone, you may find that someone is sick with malaria. So uh, someone is going to die from malaria, but malaria is curable. But this person does not have a, a dollar or mm -hmm. one dollar and a half to be taken to hospital to receive quinine or quinine or any other medicine yeah. so a priest you first take this person to uh, the hospital then you anoint them mm -hmm. so there is a lot of suffering and um, uh, we need to understand that even in our poverty even in our lack of those resources we can be spiritually rich by mm -hmm. accepting that suffering as a gift from Christ yeah. so that the benefits of those sufferings, Christ can use them for our own salvation and also for the salvation of others. Yeah. You know, and I think maybe it's interesting. Once you recover 
you know, Aquinas will say that grace does not destroy, but it perfects nature. Mm -hmm. And in an interesting way, once we recover the salvific meaning of suffering, the supernatural meaning of suffering, it almost seems to me like we also can recover almost something like the natural meaning of suffering. Because there is a strange way, I think when we are honest with ourselves, it's often through our suffering that we've grown. Um, That if we never suffered, we would probably be um, spoiled adults in different ways. And I sometimes think, I remember reading a book once on like why suffering and I didn't read the book, but I just read the little like introduction. And the woman who wrote it just was basically saying, just think about whenever something is really difficult in your life, who's the person you want to talk to? Do you want to talk to someone who's never suffered or do you want to talk to someone who has suffered? Mm -hmm. And of course, in a way, yeah, it's the people that have suffered that in a certain sense acquire a kind of depth. Could you describe maybe, you know, and for some of our listeners who probably who don't know that much about Uganda, I know you've led a number of Ave Maria students over the years on mission trips to Uganda. But what are some difficulties maybe that you experienced uh, in your youth, in your discerning a vocation to the priesthood that also helped you to kind of grow as a just as a person, as a human being? Um. In the year, I saw the effects of the Rwandan genocide. My, the my, Rwandan the, genocide? Yeah, the wow. Rwandan genocide. So that was like in 94? 1994. My, wow. my family, we are towards the border of Uganda and Rwanda. So we had even fugitives come to live with us. We had two people mm. who came to live, uh, to live with us. And even up today, there are a lot of people like that at, at our seminary. When uh, at our seminary, there were two bodies of priests that were found on Lake Victoria. Lake Victoria is like an hour away from my yes. my house. So the priests probably they were murdered mm. after uh, after celebrating mass, and some people found those bodies floating on the water, uh, and uh, they brought them to be buried at the seminary. So I remember I, I went to a high school seminary, uh, 13 year old. Okay. So as I went to the high school seminary, we went to the, uh, to, to the cemetery and there was no names um, on these graves. The words, the names on the grave was ignotus. Ignotus in Latin, it means unknown. And for me to mm-hmm. see the, these, these, uh, these uh, two graves with ignotus unknown, made me to question who are these. And the story was told to us, but later people from Rwanda heard that their their members of their family were buried at the seminary. And we saw that. And we saw that kind of communion, communion that came out of the sufferings of these people and these priests uh, that were already there. And I thought, this is... It's death that is uniting these people together. It is suffering that is uniting us, the seminarians and the people of Uganda and uh, this uh, and uh, the people in Rwanda. But uh, yeah, suffering, I saw it growing up. I grew up in a very humble family. Uh, my parents, even up they never had the medical insurance or anything like that. We mm-hmm. we, 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 started, we we lived on the mercy of God. But the community itself, we have the uh, the African adage, we call, which we call the Ubuntu adage, I am because we are, and since we are, therefore I am. Mm. So people suffer, they live, on, uh, they live on less, but because of their sufferings, they are united in a more fundamental way that I've seen even in the West where mm-hmm. I've been at, that uh, the suffering of the member, one member of the family, of the community, is a suffering of the other member of the community. The rejoicing of one member of the community is a rejoicing of the other member of the community. And having uh, told you my background, yeah. uh, going through school, I was not only sponsored by only the members of my family, every person in the village in their own way mm-hmm. contributed to my seminary tuition, even Muslims. So on my, oh, wow. on my, at my first mass, I had over 3,000 people even over 800 Muslims who came to celebrate the uh, who came to celebrate the ordination of their son, whether invited or not, they had to be there because it's the celebration, mm-hmm. it's a sacrament of the community. Wow, yeah, that's just beautiful, and it is something that I I am because we are, and we are, 
because since I we are, since and since we are therefore, therefore I am. I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a beautiful sense, and, and that is true. I think the wealthier that societies get, the less, the more we seek to be isolated <laughs> and independent from each other, and therefore lose more of that communion. And uh, which is the beautiful thing, of course, in some ways, wherever we are in whatever society, um, we have the promise of that communion right in Christ in the church. Um, so maybe let's just, you know, kind of just one kind of one, one or two last questions. Um, when you're teaching the theology of the body to our to students, which you've been doing now for maybe about what five years or so, yes. um, what are some questions that uh, you find uh, a lot of students have, and uh, what do you want the students to take away from the class? You know, five years from now. One of the questions that come out, which I think is always a very genuine question from my students, is how can the theology of the body help me to overcome my past experiences, bad experiences, sexual experiences? Mm -hmm. And uh, that is always a very genuine question. Although in the classroom, usually... Because since it is an, it's I, I, I always it's not a pastoral setting. Yeah, it is an intellectual discourse. Students always ask that, mm-hmm. uh, and I always tell them that uh, uh, it's our sins, things that happen to us, do not rob us of our dignity. Is in the image and likeness of God, and despite what has happened to us, despite our experiences. Christ, by his incarnation and redemption and resurrection, he redeemed us, he restored mm. us, yeah. and therefore we need to embrace the message of the incarnation, the message of the redemption, the message of the resurrection, the theology of the body, so that we may be healed and restored. Oh, that's beautiful. So the theology of the body is not an ideal or a standard to which we cannot live up, but it's actually what God is doing and what God has done to redeem, restore, to forgive us so that we can be really restored. We have all lied with our bodies. We've lied with our mouths. We've lied with our minds. And yet God's love comes right into our world and uh, and, and opens up a path forward it's interesting too. John Paul II will, I think his name will always be remembered with uh, the theology of the body. Yes. And I love how you tie in the understanding of suffering into that. And I think the other thing is with the divine mercy, mm-hmm. right? Divine mercy Sunday and uh, his fostering that devotion to divine mercy. And it's is I think divine mercy is the second Sunday yeah. of Easter. Yes. And right, so the theology of the body is unintelligible apart from divine mercy. Divine mercy, definitely. Right, and God's mercy is so great because it doesn't merely forgive, but it restores. It restores. And uh, in his one of uh, other writings on divine mercy, his writings is that encyclical called Dives in Misericordia, Rich in Mercy, in which he investigates, he investigates that parable of the prodigal son who squandered his father's property, yes. but when he comes back to his mind and returns to the father, the father welcomes him with open arms and restores his dignity. The theology of the body itself is a proclamation of divine mercy. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is, that is so, uh, so well put. So thank you so much, Father. I'd like to ask you just a couple questions, which I try to ask uh, members or, or people that are on the show. So would you um, tell us about a book you're reading? Yes. Um, I've been reading the history of philosophy uh-huh. by Coplestone. Yes. Because yes. I've, um, in my, uh, even with, in order to understand John Paul's theology of the body and his writings, and even many uh, fathers of the Catholic patrimony, you have to understand the history in which uh, they build up their their theology, anthropology. So uh, 
I'm reading uh, Copleston's history of uh, philosophy, and I've been uh, reading now. I'm uh, reading Aristotle. Oh wow, that's great. that's an eight volume yes. I think series or uh, on uh, Frederick Copleston's book. So mm-hmm. that's great. And what's you know obviously you know I'm sure you have many, but just maybe what's one daily practice you would like to share with uh, you know listeners and, and viewers that helps you find that meaning. Right, that that special meaning uh, from God and helps you to draw closer to God. It's my daily holy hour. Hmm. When I was in the seminary, um, the third year before the diaconate year, as uh, after I made up my mind with the help of the, my spiritual director, after I discerned that I am going to be elevated to the uh, the order of the diaconate. I put my daily holy hour among my non-negotiables. So every day after I wake up, I do go to our chapel and I do my holy hour. And after that, I go for my run. Mm. So my holy hour is my one-on-one meeting with the Lord. And uh, I've been faithful to that. I would say for most of, uh, for the last seven, eight years, I think I have not missed it. Wow. Wow. That's so beautiful. And I love the way you describe it, a one-on-one meeting mm-hmm. with our Lord, right? Um, that sense we wouldn't miss that time. How, how, how beautifully put. And maybe last question is, what's an understanding of God that you had at some point that you discovered was false? And what was the truth you discovered through the faith? I went to Muslim grade school, uh, first grade through seventh grade, and I wanted to become a Muslim. I, I understood the Muslim hadith more than the Catholic catechism. And uh, I thought God was such an angry man. Wow. Because the way they taught us, uh, when you sin, uh, the day of your burial, there will be two angels, they will hammer you seven times, and uh, they will destroy you completely, annihilate you. But the more, when I, I learned the Catholic Catechism thoroughly, I realized that our God is a God of love, is a God of both mercy and justice, but love conquers all. Wow, that's um, really, that does bring it all back to that sense of God's mercy, right? His mercy that doesn't neglect justice, but fulfills justice. Yes. Right, God's mercy doesn't simply forgive us, but it restores to us what we, was lost. Yes, definitely. Right, um, mm-hmm. as the prodigal son, right? Yes. We, we, we spurned our birthright, we spurned our inheritance, and yet God restores it to us in Jesus Christ in his resurrection. Amen. Well, uh, Father Joseph Lugalambi, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, we will certainly, and I'll ask um, any listeners and viewers to write, say a prayer uh, for the church in Uganda and uh, the, the the great kind of hope that it is. And uh, also, I think we will count on uh, the prayers of so many Catholics in Uganda for us as we try to continue to find that deeper meaning, right, amidst yes. suffering and maybe the often the suffering of those who are perhaps more affluent but also more isolated, Right, that no suffering is in vain. And uh, we can all look forward to that time, as it says in the book of Revelation, in which right, God will wipe away every tear and there will be no suffering, no more death. Uh, so thank you so much, Father, again, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.